go see the refuge itself and to see kind of what it is and how intact it is, you start to think about that's not that big of an area as the last place with that kind of landscape permanently intact. That's not that big of an area to protect. And the reality is, even if we do develop it for oil, it's probably going to be the last place in Alaska that we do have that's a major oil development. So what's Alaska's plan after that happens? Since 1936, the National Wildlife Federation has worked with hunters and anglers to pass the most important conservation laws of American history and to protect our sporting traditions. This podcast explores our history, our values, and the work we do to safeguard the fish and wildlife that fuel our passions. We are NWF Outdoors. Welcome to the NWF Outdoors podcast. This is Aaron Kindle. It's been a bit, uh, again, it seems like, since we've had our last podcast, even though it was a short two weeks ago. These summer summer days and times take up a lot of time, luckily, because the days are long and we're doing cool stuff. But we're happy to be back, and today we have a, a special guest with, uh, I think, some unique stories that very few can tell, and so I'm happy to have him. His name is Thor Tingey. How you doing today, Thor? I'm doing great. Happy to be here. Great. Thanks for coming. And Thor is the owner of Alpaca Rafts here in Colorado, which is a company that specializes in these small, wilderness-ready, ultra-durable, and I'll let him explain it in case I'm I'm getting it wrong, but uh, pack rafts that are for adventures in places just like we're going to talk about today. So I'll let him get to that, but... Uh, He's a co-founder and an owner of, of, of the Alpaca Rafts Company, and, and Thor's got a unique story for what we're going to talk, to, uh, talk about today. We're going to be really focusing on the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge, and Thor grew up partly in Alaska and, and has spent a lot of time here in Colorado, too, went to college here and obviously has his business here um, and has done just some epic adventures across Alaska, uh, largely on his his own rafts that he and his family have made. And he's also uh, connected up with someone, former podcast guest, guy we really like, Roman Dial, who's also a pro- prolific adventure, adventurer in Alaska. And he just has a ton of uh, background in Alaska and, and with the Arctic Refuge. And Thor, we, we start these with telling our audience what we've been doing outside lately. And I think you're going to have a very unique story because it's well related to this. I don't know how often we talk about a place and a subject and immediately that person has said, well, guess what I've been doing outside lately. So <laughs> I'll just let you take it away from there with what have you been up to outside lately? Well, it's, yeah, that's, I just got back one week ago, Saturday, uh, from a trip in the Arctic refuge, uh, you know, that was actually a really fun trip. I had, um, my wife and I had a baby boy, uh, 17 months ago, uh, and you know, just right before COVID hit and we'd had a plan to actually go do a trip in the Western Brooks range with Roman dial summer of 2020 that fell apart. And so turns comes into summer 2021 and we're like, well, let's go do a trip with the, the toddler and my good friend, Paul forward. Uh, he and his wife have a, have a two-year-old. And so they're like, well, let's do a trip together. So we kind of started hashing out ideas and we thought, well, 
you know, let's go to the Arctic Refuge. It's just about the wildest, most beautiful spot you can go in Alaska. And you actually do have some uh, rivers there that are a little less challenging and more uh, you know, feasible with toddlers. So we decided to do that. And it turned out to be this um, kind of really cool trip for me because we went out and did the Marsh Fork River, which is in uh, the Marsh Fork of the Canning. And that's kind of in the center of the refuge. And 20 years ago, 21 years ago, uh, the trip that kind of led us to start Alpaca Raft to develop the, uh, you know, a more modern pack raft, I had been flown into the uh, main canning and walked all the way to the village of Kobuk, which is about 700 miles away by foot. Uh, and 20 years ago, I walked up the Marsh Fork of the Canning and now 21 years later, I floated down it and literally, I think I crossed paths in terms of dates and, you know, we can get into more stories on this, but, you know, it, it's funny. I had fairly similar experiences, um, going both ways, but it was neat to reminisce on 20 years ago, walking up a place and now I'm floating down it with kid. Wow. That's excellent. I love hearing that the, that the youngster got to come too. uh, as a father who, who, and, and my wife and I, we, really prioritize getting our kids out early and often. And, you know, you often got the raised eyebrows like, hmm, you took your kid on a multi-day float trip, you know, at three weeks old or something. What the heck are you doing? So I like that. We're brothers in arms there. <laughs> we got them out quick and, and into the cool places and set them up for life. Yeah, it's it. you know, a lot of people think that if you have kids, you've got to you know, return to this sedentary life or like stay inside all the time. And, uh, it's just really not true. Kids do change you, as you know, uh, you can't mm -hmm. do the same style of trips, but you can take kids outside. I mean, how, how long have we really truly been living inside like a hundred years? You know, we've been <laughs> taking kids outside for, you know, all, all the years that humans have been on, on the earth. Um, and you know, the kids don't care. That's the funny thing. And yeah. I was talking to somebody about that today, you know, they don't see, you know, a 17 month year old doesn't think about the future. You know, I think about the future. Don't get wet because we only have a couple of changes of clothes. And, you know, he doesn't think about that. He doesn't know that we, you know, only have two spare changes of clothes. He just knows that he's playing in a big puddle right now and he, having a good time. Yeah. It reminds us of the good stuff. Um, I was actually just telling a new, a friend who's a new father just today. I said, you know, that baby was born just the other day. You know, they don't, they don't know they're malleable. They'll, they'll, they'll adhere to whatever and go with you and do whatever. If, if that's their life, that's their life. Right. It's like, I, I've seen, it's been interesting watching, you know, 35 year old people change their whole life after 35 years experience to accommodate someone who's been here for, you know, a couple months, but uh, no judgment, neither here nor there. I just hate when I see people reduce their outdoor activities and, and stop going outside when they, when they have a youngster where I think it's a great opportunity to get that youngster out. So we'll, we'll stop with yeah. that ramble there. But, uh, so why we're talking, uh, Thor is because, you know, we're going to probably see some more action on the refuge here again. Um, we, we know that in, in 2017, there was a bill passed and really that set up, uh, oil and gas development in the, on the coastal plain of the refuge. And I wanted to get, you know, someone like you, who's been there multiple times, knows this place through and through, you know, this is for all of us dreamers and, and folks who wish they have been there before. We think of this place as one of the wildest, most intact places on earth. 
And I just kind of want to hear it directly from the horse's mouth. You know, what do you see when you go up there? What does it look like when you're, when, you know, you were there last week, give us a little bit of your experiences. Yeah, there's some really amazing things about the Arctic and the refuge in particular. I think the first that jumps out is the light because I've been all, you know, my, my first big pack raft trip, uh, which led to alpaca, you know, I traversed virtually the entire state of Alaska through the Brooks range. And so I've seen the refuge gate to the Arctic national park, Kobuk, no attack. I, um, spent some time as a kid in Kot- living in Kotzebue. And, you know, the, the amazing thing about the refuge is you've really got a huge area that's got no human habitation and very little human impact. And you've got these just incredibly beautiful mountains at the top of it that are all limestone, you know, kind of um, just spectacular jagged peaks with pretty mostly clear water rivers, which is uncommon for Alaska. Alaska is such a huge place. A lot of Alaska's glacial and turbid water, but the refuge in particular has these beautiful clear aquamarine colored rivers that mostly flow north into the Arctic Ocean. And then as you come out of the mountains, you get onto the coastal plain. And when you get onto the coastal plain, you suddenly have just total flatland. And you might think, oh, flat, boring, nobody wants to do it. Uh, but the beauty of that, and I haven't, you know, I'm going to admit, I haven't actually been on a trip through the coastal plain, but I've seen it. I've flown over it. And when it opens up like that, going back to the light thing, you get this beautiful light in the Arctic, especially in summertime where you get 24 hour sunshine and, but it's very soft. And when you're in the mountains, the sun goes down behind the mountains and you get all this pretty light there. But when you're out on the coastal plain, 24 hours a day, three o'clock in the morning, you just have this gorgeous yellow light all over the landscape and you can just see unimaginably far. And, you know, that's a really special thing that I don't think most people ever get to experience that. And uh, when you, I, we can look at it, if you put industrial development there, you know, like oil rigs and things like that, that dramatically affects that viewscape. And, you know, that's, we sell lots of boats to people that want to go to the refuge and float out and see this area. I can't remember the last time we actually sold a boat to somebody who wanted to go float one of the rivers to the West that flows through the Prudhoe Bay oil fields. It's the same similar area. Just one has industrial development. One doesn't. Yeah. And I think, you know, one of the things we always talk about is we all use energy resources. We're not trying to say nobody should ever drive a car or, heat their home or, or do any of these things. I think the important distinction here is that some places on earth are just too special, too wild. You know, we got to leave some portion of the earth alone for, for natural processes to take place um, undisturbed, right? To keep, keep the wild animals, keep the wild places. And, and I think this is a good place too, Thor, to talk about because you developed this company, you and your, and your mom and, and now your wife to develop this company kind of to, to take on places like that, to have these boats that could, could do these huge adventures. Talk about that origin story a little, how, how that came to be and why you did that. Yeah. And, and the idea of pack rafting at its core is a lightweight, low impact way to landscape travel. 
that's evolved over the years into more of a traditional watercraft. But that's the uh, the core idea of pack rafting is something you put in your backpack, you traverse a landscape, and you use rivers to your advantage, and then you can cross waterways and do things like that. And you know that started for me because as a college student in 1996 there was a grant program for people to do outdoor adventures. And I'd grown up doing adventures all over Alaska, but I didn't know, you know, I was like, well, what should I do for a grant? And my parents had suggested, well, you should talk to Roman Dial, who had just completed a 700 mile, 700 plus mile mountain bike and pack raft traverse of the Alaska range, which had landed on the cover of National Geographic. And Roman says to me, you got to try pack rafting. And at the time there were like 10 people in the world that pack rafted nine of them were in Alaska and there really weren't any commercially available boats. There was a boat called the Sherpa that had been made uh, out of a reasonably durable material to go up to a mountain lake. And so they were adapting them to that, but there wasn't really a, a, um, anything else. And so Roman says, you need to go do this trip. And he, and he tells me to go to the Alaska range and it's a portion of the trip that he had done. And so in 1998, um, myself and four college classmates uh, got a grant from our college and went out and did a two week, 180 mile traverse of the Alaska range. We're like, wow, that was really cool. And this was, you know, even for me as a kid that grew up all over Alaska and had done river trips in Alaska and backpacked in Alaska, climbed in, in Alaska the you know the idea of landscape travel was like new to me that you could actually link these things together and so we thought well what's the big trip that we want to do like roman and so we said well let's look at the brooks range and you know this is 1998 uh 1998 99 and yes there's the internet is around but all of the things that we take for granted in modern backcountry travel like uh gps and digital mapping and in reaches and stuff didn't really exist. There was some digital mapping, but it was few and far between. So we bought yeah. paper maps from US Geological Survey in Anchorage, mm -hmm. Alaska, put them out on a table and started drawing a line with a pencil up and down river basins through um, the Brooks Range. And that's what led to this big uh, traverse that we did in the summer of 2000. And when I got done with that traverse, uh, we just had, it was kind of a life-changing experience for me in terms of being out for 39 days, 700 miles of traversing. And I was like, I love this concept of travel, but the boat product that we're using, we were literally using vinyl inflatable rafts that we bought from Cabela's Walmart, like the, they're $60 <laughs> boats and they barely like, we had to be very careful with them. I'll just put it that way. They did yeah, not yeah. function the way we wanted them to. And so we said, let's make a boat that functions for this. Well, tell tell us a little bit about those boats too before we get back to the refuge. Are they they bail? I assume they bail themselves. Like, t tell me a little bit more about those. Yeah. I've actually never seen one. I've always been curious. So the you know so we come I come back home. My mom, who has been in outdoor clothing design for her entire adult life, and had had a business in Jackson Hole in the nineteen sixties and seventies making ski clothing, she's kind of about to be an empty nester and wants to get back into something. She'd also been a boater. She says, well, let's make a, you know, this boat that you have doesn't work. Let's figure out how to make the right boat. And so we got together and she's just incredible genius with fabric. And, you know, all she had to learn how to do was do inflation. But the idea of actually designing something was, was 
is very natural to her. And, and so I'm like, I need it to have bigger tubes. And I need it to be this size and this weight. And we came up with this and we made a couple of prototype prototypes in 2001. And that was the first alpaca raft. And we've evolved the designs immensely over two decades to the point where we now have like high performance whitewater models that have spray decks and thigh straps and you can roll them and run class four, even sometimes class five whitewater in them. Wow. And then we've got hunting specific models that are big self bailers could can conceivably carry an entire moose out in one load. Uh, so we have oh, a I'll huge a broad product that. line. <laughs> yeah. It's called our big boat's called the forager and it's got a thousand pound weight capacity. You're going to be tight on space, but it can carry the load. Uh, and wow. so we've, but the product line has evolved tremendously over the years. And that's why they're now not just a pure backpacking boat, but a lot of people buy them for regular river trips and just their regular, um, you know, water sports needs, but mm -hmm. the, the core, it's still the idea of put it in a backpack and traverse landscape. So going back to this, when you think about core pack rafting and the idea of traversing landscapes, you need an intact landscape to do that. And yes, you can go urban pack rafting, but the, the real like, you know, appeal of the sport is where you have this landscape that's intact. So I can walk up one river valley or up across one mountain drain at uh, pass or up a ridge line and then descend into a river basin on the other side and float out. And You've got the entire continental United States, not including Alaska, and that's a big amount of land. There's like only a small handful of rivers that are true landscape level pack raft rivers. Most of them exist in the Bob Marshall wilderness in Montana. There are a few in Colorado that are more higher, harder whitewater where we can back back in and float out. But Alaska is kind of like the ground zero of where you have these big intact landscapes that you can do all these things. And the best one I've ever seen, and I've been through a lot of Alaska, is the Arctic Refuge. It's the place where you see the fewest numbers of, you know, people and uh, the least impact. And we just don't have that many places like that left in the world. And Alaska in general is like that. But... You know, when you get into the Yukon Basin, it's really incredible country, but you actually have a lot of historic human habitation, not just um, Native Americans, but you had the whole gold rush going through there. You have human development in that. Sure. Uh, and you don't have that in the Arctic Refuge. It, the landscape looks, with the exception of the movement of the boreal forest and the growth of trees, even since I first started going there, the landscape and the wildlife and everything else looks pretty much exactly how it would have looked if we had shown up there in 1800 pre-Western culture. And now let's pause for a message from our partner podcast. Hey everyone, this is Marsha Brownlee from Artemis Sports Women. We know you love awesome stories about hunting, fishing, and conservation. So head on over to the Artemis podcast. You'll meet adventurous, accomplished women who are redefining conservation through their lives in the field and on the water. Filled with humor, audacity, empathy, and intelligence, Artemis brings you new voices and introduces you to women from all walks of the sporting community. Find Artemis wherever you get your podcasts. Let's do something. How about you 
Matt, give us this, just paint this picture for me. You wake up in your tent, typical day, floating down one of these rivers. Just walk me through a day. What does it look like? What do you see? What animals do you see? You know, what are the things, what, what are you going through? What does it smell like? Just kind of try to set the scene for us. Oh, man. <laughs> you put me on the spot there. No, I knew you would have it right off your off the cuff. So, <laughs> yeah, it's, you know, when you're in the in the, in the refuge, you know, you're getting out of your tent. It's going to be light. It's going to be a light 100 percent of the time. You kind of forget what time is if you're up there in the summer. We were up there with a 17 month old. I think he went to bed after 1130, like three of the eight nights we were in the back country and largely because we kind of forgot what time it is. He's playing and rampaging around. So you have this, you know, kind of 24 hour light. Uh, so you really adapt to how schedule works for you in terms of when is a good time to travel. And then the weather moves through really fast. And so on any given day, you might see sun pop out and then you see the clouds build push up the river and you're looking in these big broad beautiful river valleys where you can see miles down the river valley but you're also like in big mountains uh and because you're further north than the limit of the boreal tree line you know it's just wide open expanses and spaces and so you just get these incredibly long views of these really jagged mountains and they're limestone and there's not a ton of limestone in the continental 48 or certainly not limestone mountains. You know, I would say that the closest you can get to the kind of mountains that you might anticipate seeing in the Arctic refuge is, uh, the Telluride Ure area, except those areas are very intimate, narrow Valley, big, yeah. big, steep mountains, the Arctic refuge, broad Valley, steeper mountains. So really spectacular mm. that way. And then, you know, on any given day, the the animals, all the big animals there, they're migratory. So caribou migrate a lot. Wolves move with the caribou. Bears move a ton. You know, you're, the few animals that are going to be more stationary are sheep, and they move around all over the mountain, but they don't, like, migrate 100 miles one way or another. And so that's one of the reasons I really like river trips up there is when you're floating the river, the animals use the rivers as corridors. That's where all their trails are. And so... When you're floating down a river, if you're quiet, even if you're not quiet because it's the refuge, you know, you'll see caribou moving up and down all day, especially if you're while they're in their migration. Or you may do a trip like this trip where we saw two caribou in eight days, you know, and that's just because the caribou weren't there right then. But you might, somebody else that maybe was two rivers over on the hula hula, they might have seen 10,000 caribou walk through their camp over a period of days. And so you kind of get that magical experience that way. That's awesome. What, what other wildlife did you see on this trip? Was it kind of one of the times when you saw less or what other things did you see? The least we've ever seen. We saw a lot of sheep. We saw two muskox, which are really cool. You don't get to see those very often. Yeah. And two caribou and no predators, you know, and that makes sense. Not going to see predators if we're not seeing the prey. Yeah. So we see in uh, lots sheep of birds then? though, doll sheep. Yep. Yeah. What What about birds? Uh, what did you see for birds? Uh, uh, n numerous golden eagles. Uh, the Marsh Fork has fewer. I, I don't know why this is, but there are other rivers that are better for falcons. Uh, and I've been on those rivers where you uh, will see, you know, every bluff has a peregrine or a jeer falcon or 
a um, um, other or like a merlin or something else nesting there. Uh, but the marsh fork doesn't have as many falcons on it. We saw a few, but tons of golden eagles, tons of uh, all the uh, shorebirds, plovers, um, killdeer, uh, those kinds of things. Uh, Arctic terns. Well, we know Paul's kind of a sheep man too, so I'm sure he had some some stories for you and some behavior if, and. <laughs> Yeah, if if it can be hunted with a traditional bow, Paul wants to go hunt it. So yeah. he's um, a prolific he was, sheep hunter. Yeah. Um, what about fish? Did you? What kind of fish are in these rivers? What are you seeing there? Or are you fishing at all? So you have you have resonant uh, grayling in all those rivers, uh, which are really beautiful fish. I grew up catching them. Kind of have a special place in my heart. Um, even though if you tend to live in Alaska, you kind of it's it, it's possible to get bored of grayling. They're yeah. the equivalent of, like you know, I think if you live in the Midwest, they're the equivalent of your crappie or your perch or something like that. But you know, if you've never caught one before, they really are beautiful, and there are a lot of them in the Arctic rivers. And then you get uh, migratory or um, um, anadromous char, and I can't remember specifically whether they're Arctic char up there or they're Dolly Varden. They are technically two distinct species. Um, I can't remember exactly which one are there, but they're big Arctic char, Dolly Varden that are anadromous. And they come into those rivers in August. So we didn't have any char on this trip. And we actually had a massive rainstorm that, that brought the river up seven feet and made it totally turbid for us, made it a wild ride out with the kids. So we, uh, I had a fishing rod. I didn't actually get to go fishing because by the time I, I kind of like set up, go fishing the river blown out and, and it never cleared up by the time we got done, which is, wow. and that's a Sounds new, adventurous. that's a Seven new feet. thing that's been happening. Yeah. Well, Arctic char for folks who don't know, they look kind of like a gigantic brook trout and I don't think they're related to them. They are. But what, but what do I know? Oh, they are. Okay. Yeah, yeah, so they're uh, all um, so Arctic char, Dolly Varden, brook trout, lake trout, and I and, the and several other species are all yeah. in the char family. So even though we call brook trout trout, they're technically a char, um, oh. and same with lake trout. So they are, they're in the same um, uh, genus. I can't remember what genus that is. Once upon a time, I knew. Yeah. Well, good. That's, we learned something today. These things are, I mean, I've seen pictures of like, you know, what have to be 20, 30 pound char, like just gigantic. Yeah. Fish. I think, I think they top out in the, in the um, high teens, low twenties, but you mm -hmm. know, it's pretty, when they're running, like you don't catch like small ones, you're catching like salmon size, like eight to 10 pound, beautiful big char. And you might on the small size, you might get a four or five pound fish. And they're anadromous. Oh, wow. They're very um, widely distributed up there. So when they're in, uh, they're great fun to catch and they're incredibly good to eat. So what do you fish? How do you fish them? What do you fish with? So uh, any kind of, uh, if you're on spin gear, any kind of spinner works. If you're on fly gear, any kind of streamer is just, they crush that. But if you want to have a lot of fun, you can pick them up on mice and it, they oh, can pick yeah. them up on a bright top water fly. Uh, so there's a, there's a lot of ways to catch them. But if you just want to catch them, any kind of big streamer or uh, spoon or spinner. I'm going to have to do that. Wow, that sounds cool. Um, so this if you, when you've been up there at other times, have you had any kind of really unique wildlife encounters that you would share? Yeah, I've had... Um, 
you know, I, th I think the wolf encounters are always uh, kind of the most fun and the um, most special because uh, you just don't see that many wolves uh, in your life. And, you know, yeah. I know wolves can be controversial to some people, but I do love seeing them and they are a native species, especially, um, you know, widely distributed up in northern Alaska. And, you know, and they're very you don't see a wolf for a long time. You're just cruising along and then suddenly there's a wolf coming at you and it trots along the bank and, you know, you get make a few minutes eye contact and then they move on. You can kind of watch them um, head along. But I've, I, I, we did have an experience one time up there where we happened to just get lucky and camp near a wolf den that we didn't know about. And uh, they had the pups out on the ridge and they were all howling and we were howling back at them. And we got to spend about 24 hours about a quarter mile away from them. And that was really cool. I have yet, I really want to go up and see the caribou migration. I have yet to have that experience in the refuge where you're out on the coastal plain when the caribou are migrating through and they're calving. Um, and if you happen to hit it right, you can be on one of these rivers and you just set up camp and 30,000 caribou will walk by your wow. camp over a period of a week, just daily. They just stream along. You know, and when they cross the river, you know, the, the back eddies fill with caribou hair because there's so many of them. Oh, gosh. That sounds pretty exceptional. Where are they going to and from? Do you know? I like, I, I'm, I'm just really not familiar. I'm really counting on you to fill me in on just about my, all of this. My understanding of their migration patterns, and I haven't like followed up in detail, is they, they, the porcupine herd, which is what most of the herd in the eastern part of the refuge is that herd stays most of the year it does stay north of the continental divide you know on the north side of north slope and it and it it ranges from the coastal plain of the arctic refuge over to the coastal plain of the firth and the mackenzie river delta in northwest territories so they do go across the border and then they occasionally do migrate south over the continental divide and into the um headwaters of the rivers that flow south out of the refuge towards the Yukon Basin. Uh, but mostly they're up north and they just kind of work their way back and forth. And uh, I know when we were there that the pilot said that most of them were over in Canada then. They had already hmm. moved out of the refuge. Hmm. Well, I know for, you know, a lot of American hunters, man, it's the dream place to go find a caribou for sure. Um, it is. Porcupine herd. Yep. Yeah, it's, 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 I did it. Uh, I, I went up there and did a hunt in 2018 and we walked into the refuge from the road and then floated back. Oh, wow. So pack raft style hunt. Um, did you get a caribou on one of your rafts? Uh, I didn't personally shoot one. We had four guys with us and we killed two caribou and we floated out and, uh, there's a five mile corridor on the road there. That's archery only. It's kind of competitive to hunt it. Uh, it used to be it's not bad hunting because of the animals it's there, there can be a lot of animals in that five mile corridor, but it tends to be fairly heavily hunted by people just driving up and down the road, looking for animals mm. with binoculars, which makes sense. That's what I do if that's what I was doing. But if you're willing to walk and you can get away from all the people and we didn't see a sign of a, we were only eight miles or nine miles from the road as the crow flies. And we did not see a sign of a human for five, six days. And we got into caribou, harvested a couple, and it took us four hours to float out and be back to the car. 
Wow, that sounds like a cool way to do it. My boy has his his sights set on talking me into getting him up there to hunt caribou one day. I have a young son who's just way into hunting and loves providing meat and just wants to hunt everything. And uh, he's he yes. says, I want to go there and hunt those, uh, the porcupine herd. He knows more about it than I do. <laughs> no, it's a fabulous hunt. And if you're lucky to do it as a float hunt, uh, whether it's a walk-in float out or a fly-in float out kind of trip, um, you know, the nice thing is that uh, the non-resident caribou season coincides very nicely with the Arctic char run. So as yeah. long as you don't get a big rain event and blow out the rivers, you can usually do both. Well, that's what I've been telling him. I'm like, we got to figure out a way if we do this, we go up and get some fish and some caribou and just get send home a bunch of meat for the freezers. That's what I'm thinking. <laughs> yep. Well, that's awesome. Well, you know, one of the reasons we're talking is that, you know, we're seeing another opportunity that, you know, this place could perhaps be, you know, the drilling, drilling could be blocked. And the ultimate hope though, is that we get permanent protection. You know, I think there's, there's a pretty good consensus with the exception of very few that, you know, it's not the right place to, to drill and develop oil. Lots of some, some banks are starting to pull out of financing anything up here. You know, the tides are really starting to turn all signs point to, you know, let's not drill this place. And, and maybe you can just, you know, through your experiences, talk about what you've seen, both sides, either side, you know, why you think it shouldn't be developed and just your, your experience and, and kind of what that's meant for your view on this. Yeah, I, I, I feel fortunate because I was lucky enough to have uh, be raised in Alaska. And so we moved up there when I was three years old. And, uh, I lived there all the way through high school and I returned after call, you know, spent all my summers in college there and then lived there for five years after college. And then I've continued to go back, even as I've, um, you know, made our home in the lower 48, you know, we go back every year that we can and usually try to do a trip. I still have very close friends that live there. And so I got to see, you know, I'm not old enough to have seen Alaska in the seventies and the sixties, but I got to see Alaska in the eighties and the nineties and the two thousands. And, you know, I, in, in the eighties, you know, that's immediately after the, the oil boom and Alaska really changed as a state when the pipe, pipeline went in, changed economically. Um, it, it just changed in, in, in so many ways. And I, I understand. And so Alaska has always had a lot of resource extraction as part of its economy. Uh, but really with the pipeline, you know, oil has paid for that state for 40 years. And so I understand why Alaska politicians and why, you know, a fairly substantial portion of the Alaska public is very pro natural resource development um, and oil development, because that's what pays for almost everything that they've ever seen in life from the state and stuff like that. And, and the, the tough thing that you can also have, and I've experienced this as a kid growing in Alaska to then moving out of state is you can get you forget how spoiled you are in Alaska. You have a tremendously large state with tremendous amount of natural resources. Most of the state, you still have all of your pre-Westernization megafauna. But when you move to the lower 48, you kind of start to realize that that's gone. We don't have that stuff. The Midwest does not look the way it did 200 years ago. The animals aren't there. You know, it's, you know, everything's changed and it's changed in the West a lot too. It's really hard to get out and see 
anywhere in the West, even Yellowstone. Yellowstone is not the same as it was 200 years ago. And even though it was protected as our first national park in the late, late 18 or mid 1800s, but Alaska still has a lot of that, but there's so much of it that people in Alaska get kind of, kind of caught up in, well, there's plenty of it here and it doesn't really matter. And very few people in Alaska really actually have been to the refuge and have been onto the coastal plain and seen what it's like. And for, I think myself, I'm lucky enough to have been there, lived there, lived all over the state. You know, I grew up in Denali Park and went to school in Healy, which is a coal mining town. And to go see the refuge itself and to see kind of what it is and how intact it is, you start to think about, it's a big place. It's, I don't remember how many million acres it is. But when you start getting an airplane and flying back and forth from Colorado, it's a little tiny place. It takes like probably 25 minutes for a full-size jet to fly across the entire thing. And when you start thinking about it and you're like, you know, that's not that big of an area. If you think about it as the last place with that kind of permanent, with that kind of landscape permanently intact, that's not that big of an area to protect. And the reality is, even if we do develop it for oil there, it's not, it's probably going to be the last place in Alaska that we do have, like, that's a, that's a major oil development. So what's Alaska's plan after that happens? Are they just really trying to be like, get one more oil hit for the next five, 10, 15 years? And is, is that worth it when you think about the, the cost to this really incomparable resource? And I like to look at a state like Colorado, you know, here we live here. I, I can't, I don't know Salida's history, but where we are in Mancus, Mancus is a ranching town and it's still ranching, but Telluride's a mining town. There's not, and there's some mining claims there, but Telluride's had, and most of the Western slope of Colorado has had to move away from mining. It was, you know, almost all the mountains in Colorado were mining towns and it was heavily mined. Um, turn it through turn of the century and well into the, you know, I, I don't know how late in the 1950s and 60s and stuff, but that was like Colorado's resources, but Colorado's reinvented itself and developed its, a new economy on the Western slope. that's built around public lands. that's built around tourism. that's built around, um, you know, for us, like, you know, we're doing, um, you know, outdoor manufacturing and stuff. And so there's other ways for states to be successful and not have to do natural resource development to the end until everything is a mess. Yeah. And I, I think, I mean, one of the things I want to emphasize as much as anything on this one is there's just some places, right? Like there's 7 billion or almost 7 billion people on earth now, like we're whittling it down to the last. And it's interesting that you mentioned how, you know, relatively small it is because it is compared to the entire landscape. But, you know, for most of us, we think of this place as just this, ultimate huge landscape that's wild that's millions of acres which you know takes a while to walk across something like that it takes more than a lifetime to learn a place like that um but at the same time you know these last few places can't you know can we can we ask ourselves is is it worth these last few places for like you mentioned maybe another 10 15 20 year hit and i think it was interesting when they put this sale up how little, uh, you know, uh, response they got and how, le- how much less revenue it generated than they anticipated. They anticipated billions of dollars and it was only in the low millions of dollars that they got. Um, uh, 
And so I think there's kind of a cultural change. There's a, there's a, a, an understanding of what this is, but I think one of the hardest things for people to grapple with here is that, like you said, even most Alaskans haven't been here, much less most Americans, right? Like we're talking 0.0001% of people have ever seen this place, much less know what it is. But that's why it's important to talk to people like you because you've been there, you see it, you know what it is, you know what the values are, and then just tell those stories. So so I, I appreciate you doing that. You know, one of the things we're working on at NWF is is really starting to promote permanent protection. And I want to get your view of, you know, what do you think permanent protection would look like? What do you what do you think needs to be preserved, conserved? You know, what do you think the values that we ought to be looking at? Is there is there places that you need to protect from X mountain range to X river or, you know, in your mind, what does protection look like? You know, to me, I think we need this is selfish, but I think we need to look at landscapes and because there are so few intact landscapes left left. Everything's really broken up. Uh, you know, maybe the Bob Marshall wilderness in Montana is kind of a landscape, but most of our wilderness areas in the lower 48, they're not really a landscape. They're like a dot where we didn't quite get the machines to dig for ore there. And so we were like protected this little tiny little like dot on the map. And, you know, you've got a road going straight to it with a parking lot. And then it says wilderness boundary right there. And you walk in and the trail's big because a lot of people go there. And so you kind of uh, have lost the impact, I, I feel like the, the like experience impact of going into a place and getting, you know, we've allowed planes to fly into the wilderness in Alaska, the Arctic refuge um, outside of the area which, where, where they are trying to explore for oil is designated wilderness, but you can fly an airplane in a designated wilderness in Alaska, but it, you get dropped off with an airplane there and you stand back and you're just like, wow, this place is big. In this place, there's this feeling of immenseness and uh, openness and um, sort of intactness that you don't get in a lot of other places. And that's even changed there in the 20 years since I first went there on my first trip and I came back 20 years later. You know, we saw, uh, you know, just to show, explain some of the changes. And I think this is what people need to start thinking about in, in their own lives, that it's easy to get, you know, pretend like it's not happening, is change happens and sometimes and we need to think about that and so in the 20 years since i've went there and then went back and that's what's nice it's a 20-year period between those two points i'm not a person that's gone back to the same place every 20 every year for 20 years like i went there 20 years ago maybe my memory's bad but i went there again this year and 20 years ago i walked through this whole area walked 700 miles across the brooks range and outside of the village of anaktubic and a cabin on a private lake a private cabin on the lake in, in uh, Gates of the Arctic National Park, we saw one other person. On this trip alone, eight days floating, I believe um, we talked to five people and I think I saw 12 and I knew there were multiple groups on the river. So that's gonna happen, it's gotten more popular. And there's and you can see some impacts from that that I didn't, didn't necessarily see 20, 20 years ago. So you are gonna have you know people-oriented change regardless of, of, of what you do, but I think you do have to keep industrial development out because the visual impact of that and the experiential impact of that is just, it's severe and it's, I won't say permanent because things do grow back, but it's 
permanent for my lifetime. It's probably permanent for my kid's lifetime. Um, and then, you know, maybe things change. And I don't, I don't think that's worth it. I think when I look at all the things that have changed in my lifetime, um, I don't tell, try to be short here, but I could tell this little story. I had a guy reach out to me via social media or reach out to the company via social media a couple of years ago. And he was very angry that we were providing a, we had provided support in the past to the native fish society in Oregon. Um, hmm. And his position was the Native Fish Society wants to end hatchery salmon in uh, the Pacific Northwest. He's like, I fish for these salmon every year on the Columbia River. That's a really important experience to me. I want my kids to see that. I want my kids to be able to catch these salmon and bring a salmon home for the fish. And if the Native Fish Society gets its way, there won't be any more fish that I can kill. And I explained to him first, the main reason we support the Native Fish Society is they are most of the wild salmon drainages are, are the most intact ones. They're the ones we care about for pack rafting because they don't have development on them. But where I really went back and forth is I said, you know, that's interesting, your perspective on that. And you're trying to preserve something that you see as, cha as potentially changing or losing for your kids. Well, I grew up in Alaska and I some of my fondest memories, as funny as this is, are as being a kid and going up to the map new the susitna river drainage to try and catch king salmon wild king salmon with the hordes of people all standing in a row at midnight while the, when the fishery opens and i remember that and like wow i got to catch a king salmon as like a 12 year old they have not had regular openings for to catch kings on the susitna drainage in over a decade you know, sometimes there's emergency openings, but the reality is, is those fish runs are are in such dire state for a million reasons that we could probably spend a whole nother podcast on and we would need like smarter people than me on the issue. But the reality is, is like that experience that I had as a kid doesn't exist anymore. And I think we can all kind of look at those things that those changes that have happened in our life and places. And when you start thinking about that, you say, do we really want to continue to take those things away for one, some of the few untouched areas that really are the world the way it was 200 years ago, absent throwing out the way climate is changing. Yeah, man, you touched on whew, several things there. We've got climate change. We've got what it means <laughs> when, when you know, when you put the W, the the wilderness mark on something. What it means, you know that that just attracts people, right? It's a spot on the map. It's like a beacon. Here I am. Come, come recreate or, or things like that. At least that's definitely the experience in the lower 48. Um, and then you talked about, you know, just salmon and, and all the other things that are into that, you know, the dams, the, the heat, the, the there's just so much there. And I think it, it's a good kind of points to back what we're talking about a little bit here. There's only so many of these places that don't have those, you know, death by a thousand cut type issues. And, the easiest way to keep them that way is just not mess with them too much. Um, and I think, you know, that's, that's really what we're getting at here. It's just the wrong place for development, right? Any kind of development. I don't want to see a house there. I don't want to see a, a grocery store or a convenience store. I don't want to see anything there. I want to, that, that should be a place for the wild critters. Um, yeah, I think we're on we the same page there, you know? And we don't need to. I mean, if we don't develop the Arctic Refuge for oil, there's still going to be oil development. I mean, our products are made with, you know, urethane coated nylon. Those are byproducts of oil. 
I, I understand that. But there's that we have a lot of oil development in the world. And, you know, there is they just have recently offered for leasing massive amounts of land in the National Petroleum Reserve, which is just a few hundred miles west of the Arctic Refuge. And that's a really incredible place, too. But it's the National Petroleum Reserve. It was specifically set aside for that. And I know there are groups that are trying to stop oil production there. And, you know, that's you're always going to have people on both sides of the issue when you get into these kinds of things. But the reality is when you look at the specialness of the Arctic Refuge, the the fact that at this time when they finally got a political win and got it, you know, an oil uh, lease sale in, there just wasn't that much interest. There's not that much appetite in developing that resource by the oil companies themselves or their financial backers or the public at large. And the reality is, is that we've got a smaller group of people who are still trying to pursue this largely for personal and, you know, maybe for their state financial reasons. And at the end of the day, I, that doesn't, I don't think that's good enough. Well, thanks for that. Let me ask you one more question and I'll let you go. I, I know you're. You've been running around like a crazy man too, and we're all busy, so I'll let you go soon. But you mentioned too that your your company, Alpaca Rafts, you know, conservation and and for folks who know the company, conservation is certainly something that you guys prioritize. And and you told me you made a statement before we even were recording, and, and I don't know if you can if you remember what that is, and you can repeat it. But just talk about your engagement in conservation and and how that relates to the refuge. Yeah. So, you know, one of the things that our company does is we, we kind of have some core values, like, you know, most companies have, and we're fortunate to be in a situation where we have a, a, um, very supportive customer base that is growing, that likes our product. And so we don't have to, we don't spend much money on marketing. We don't spend much money, you know, I, I can't even, we have a marketing manager, manager who's wonderful, but we, we direct her to spend most of her time on towards our conservation issues, not trying to sell more, more product. We're in a luxury position though, where people want our product. So I'm not sitting here going, I can't pay the bills. I got to get more people to buy it, but we have that, but we've chosen to, to take our, the money that we can and our energy and our resources and divert it towards uh, protecting places where we would go pack rafting and not ad infinitum, but looking at those special places like the Arctic Refuge and making that a core part of our values. And because we care about intact landscapes, lower 48 is a huge space of land. And, but the reality is the number of places that are really like awesome for, for what we think of core pack rafting pursuits is very limited given how big the lower 48 is awesome in Alaska. Alaska is kind of ground zero for our product and the Arctic Refuge is like the most aspirational place I think that you could go pack rafting, although anywhere in Alaska, you know, and, um, you know, we want to see those, those places kept for future generations because that's a, that's a sustainable resource, people enjoying things like that. Um, I also wanted to say one funny thing, because we talked about wilderness a little bit. I've always had a personal definition of wilderness, um, that often doesn't apply in the lower 48. But for me, I've always felt like wilderness is a place where if I'm there and I see another person or even evidence of another person, I'm like excited. Like I want to go find out who that person is because 
wow, we are really off the grid here. And so I want to find, find out who that person is, how they got there and stuff like that. And there are fewer and fewer places in the world where that's actually true. And even in the Arctic Refuge, 20 years apart, you know, when we saw that one person on 40 days, 700 mile traverse 20 years ago, it was like in, it was like eight o'clock at night. It was pouring rain. We saw a tent. We walked over the tent. We're like, hello, somebody there. And we like chatted with this guy for like 30 minutes because we hadn't seen somebody in 20 days. And, you know, that was like, that felt very wildernessy. Whereas, you know, this time wow. I was flowing in, like I walk up behind the airstrip, get my binoculars up. Oh, there's a person walking around over there. Oh, there's six people walking up the river bar there. It's a different experience. Yeah. Well, there's a lot of people on earth. There's a lot of, <laughs> there are a lot of people on earth. It's there's true. a lot of uh, places that people want to see in, in the information age we're in right now. Uh, there's a lot of yeah. uh, ways to find out about places. One thing that is cool is even today, you know, even down here in Colorado, which Southwest Colorado has been very busy the last two years, lots of people coming up here to recreate and, you know, it's exciting to see, but it's also sometimes when you're the local, you're like, where are all these people doing here? But it's amazing how if you are willing to do some walking and you don't want to just go to the big trail with popular, like, you know, Instagram, like lake at it, you can, you can still get away from people pretty easily. Um, which is exciting that that still exists. Yes. I share your experiences there. I, I seek those places out myself. Well, good. I think this is a good ode to, to wild places and wild things and, and keeping those real and, and in our lives for, you know, in perpetuity, hopefully I, I, you know, I, I mentioned my son and my daughter and they, they love going in the woods and they love going to wild places and seeing wild critters and, it's part of our lives and I hope their kids and their kids and can, can experience those things too. And, and I hope this, the refuge will be there and intact for, for your kids with your family history uh, there and, and, and all the cool things you've gotten to see and keep telling your story. Appreciate what you're doing for, for conservation and, and the, your business is It's pretty sweet that the niche you've carved out there. And I might be getting in touch with you one of these days soon to, to figure out how I go float a river and find a caribou with my boy here, here soon. <laughs> so that would be awesome. Well, thanks Thor. Anything else you want to leave us with before I let you go back into your busy, busy day? No, I just really enjoyed that conversation, you know, and I, I think it's important for people to, uh, you know, to, you don't have to become a crazy activist to, to speak out on these issues. You can tell friends, you can bring, bring it up, you know, word, you know, it's amazing how word can kind of snowball on that kind of, kind of thing. Um, you know, you'd be surprised as an individual at how effective contacting your legislator can be, especially at, at a personal level, you know, when you're doing, you know, I, I think you can always be involved in the, you know, campaigns or the robo calls and stuff where you're just sending a form letter and, and those are valuable too but i've been back to dc once and i've called in as well um, for you know campaigns to advocate for the refuge and i've been amazed at how receptive people in congress are to you as an individual if you tell them you're a constituent you know, more often than not, you might actually get personal time with that representative, especially if you go to DC. 
and they'll talk to you about your life, what you do, you know, and, you know, they can talk, talk to you about things that are important to you, even if, you know, you, you and them may not politically agree. Uh, my wife and I uh, had a great conversation with our congressman um, a couple years ago. And we talked about our business, talked about things that are important for us. We talked about McPhee Dam here in um, Southwest Colorado. And, you know, um, Congressman Tipton was, you know, very much, you know, pro-dam, pro, you know, water for the farmers, which I, I get. And, you know, here we are. We're having a good conversation with him about values for us. And, and I think people think that Congress people are more intimidating than they actually are. They're just people. Well, that's good advice. We're always telling folks, you know, tell your story, connect with people who don't agree with you, be a community. Uh, we all live here. We're all trying to make it work. Uh, reach out, treat people like your neighbors. I always say, you know, we need to look at our country like a community. How do we help each other? How do we, you know, bring over a stick of butter when your neighbor's making cookies or, or whatever, <laughs> something like that. It's lend a helping hand when they're building the fence. Uh, take care of your community. Appreciate that you're doing that. You're using your business for that. Um, you know, our, our decision makers really like to hear from business owners. And I like that yep. you're, uh, you know, just telling folks, do your part, you know, just, just grab the phone and, and make a call and do your thing and tell people why you value certain things. And it, and it does go a long way. So thanks for saying that. Yeah. And understand that as hard as it may be um, in a time, and I, you know, I've lost personal friends over politics, but as hard as it may be in the time, understand that most people's personal views and, and the, their political opinion is driven by the life experience. So talking to Congressman Tipton, he talks about growing up in, in the area here before McPhee Dam and not having water to take a shower when he was a kid. Well, of course he wants a shower. I get that. <laughs> like that's how he views it. And so here I am a business owner that sells rafts. I'm like, I want water in the river. You know, that, that's our personal experience. So, you know, yeah. understand that people have their personal experience will almost always inform their, their views on life. Well, thanks, man. Uh, keep doing what you're doing. We're not too far from one another. Hopefully uh, we can cross paths personally one of these days and we should give a shout out to Emily for, yeah, for connecting. She's us. fantastic. Emily is a, uh, Emily is also an uh, Artemis ambassador. I'm always scared to say her last name because I'm afraid I'll butcher it. Letter Gerber. Leader Gerber. Letter Gerber. Yeah, but yeah. she's a she's a great person and has been awesome with Artemis, our our sportswomen's initiative, who folks definitely know about at this point. And thanks, Emily, for connecting us up. And Thor, I'll let you go, man. Happy trails, and All we'll right. catch up soon. Thanks much. We are. NWF Outdoors.